In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, I'm really excited about today's guest because he's someone I've referenced several times throughout my writing at the Art of Manliness. His name is Waller Newell. He is a professor of political science at Carleton University in Canada, and he's written several books about manhood or like the philosophy of manliness throughout Western history. One book he wrote was called The Code of Man, and the second was What is a Man, which is an anthology of poems, essays, speeches, excerpts from literature that speak to sort of this philosophy of virtuous manhood that he argues has existed since the ancient Greeks and goes all the way through up to the 20th century, but then stopped. Anyway, in today's podcast, Professor Newell and I discuss what it means to be a virtuous man, what what manliness has meant since the ancient Greeks and through the Renaissance, through the Enlightenment, and what it means today, and why turning our backs on this sort of what he calls a rich heritage of manhood has been disastrous for our times in the 21st century. We also get into talking about manliness and how it relates to terrorism. He uh, also does a lot of research about tyranny honor terrorism so we get into talking about what's going on today in the world with isis and whatnot and uh, how masculinity plays a role into that anyways it's just a, a very fascinating discussion if you love the great books if you love aristotle if you love plato if you love some of the more philosophical stuff we write in the art of analysis you're really going to love this discussion today with professor newell so let's do this professor waller newell welcome to the show nice to be with you so you are a professor of political science, but you've spent a great deal of time writing about Western conceptions of manliness. That's right. Why the interest in researching and writing about masculinity or manhood and what it's meant throughout history as a political science professor? Well, I'd always uh, worked on issues like ambition, tyranny, honor-seeking in classical thought. And a journalist friend of mine some years back said to me, a lot of people are interested in these issues. Why don't you try writing for a larger audience? And that combined with some observations I had made about my students, particularly my male graduate students who were, I'd say, in their mid to late 20s, that they seem particularly conflicted about this issue of manliness or manhood. In other words, should you try to act that way? If you should, what should it be? And really, that's how the two things went together. So I, I took a stab at writing an essay, uh, which eventually was published by the Weekly Standard called The Crisis of Manliness. And I'd been working on it in London, England, where I was on sabbatical, 
And one day I walked to my local bookstore to take a break, and lo and behold, I came across this novel called Fight Club. And as I began flipping through it, I felt this mounting sense of excitement because I realized this guy has seen what I've seen. And that's, that's really what inspired me to do it. Okay. So the, what you've done is you go through the canons of Western thought all the way back to the ancient Greeks up until modern times to kind of suss out what manhood or manliness means. Um, so what did you discover? How, how, have, how has the West defined manhood or true manhood throughout 3,000 years? Well, traditionally, I would say that it's been conceived of as a balance of mind and passion uh, or um, uh, self-control and, and desire and a kind of harmonious partnership between those spheres of life. It's, it's perhaps best conveyed by famous uh, images like the chariot of the soul in, in Plato's Phaedrus where the two passions of love and honor-seeking are controlled by the charioteer of the mind. And just as the passions represented by those steers will plunge downward and fall out of the sky if they're not controlled by the charioteer, by the same token, the chariot isn't going to get anywhere without the power of those horses. So it's it's a kind of symbiotic relationship between the intellect and the passions. You, you also find that, say, in, in Cicero's Dream of Scipio, where the life of martial virtue, civic virtue, is guided by the life of the mind in a kind of harmonious whole. Uh, Castiglione's uh, The Courtier, really down throughout the whole classical era, down to the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, it's been a coherent depiction, I think, of manhood at its best. Okay. And so it seems like manhood then is uh, a culmination or a, yeah, developing certain virtues, correct? Like yeah. living a virtuous life. Um, right. If, if that's the case, then like, how does manhood differ from womanhood? Because you know, women could be virtuous as well. Um, so how, how can you be virtuous but in a manly way? Yeah, Absolutely. I, I would describe it as two different paths to the same goal. In other words, men and women aspire or should aspire to the same virtues of character, virtues of mind, but the male path might be psychologically somewhat different. And so I think that traditionally it was understood that men, young men in particular, have a certain kind of leaning toward aggressiveness, uh, toward ambition, even toward belligerence, that required a different kind of shaping to enable them to aspire to these higher virtues. And what I have found interesting in the years since I first wrote my books about manliness is that a lot of current research on human psychology seems to be suggesting that these male traits of aggressiveness are hardwired in the human character, that, that they're not just acculturated. So there's been a lot of interesting empirical research done about that. The fact that boys, for example, respond more positively to exhortation than girls do, the fact that girls work together better in groups in school than boys do, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really interesting new research that seems to reaffirm some of the traditional 
approaches. Interesting. So um, I guess manliness then is sort of the tempering that that aggressiveness or that thumos, right? If you want to go back to the the chariot. Yes, absolutely. I mean, really, for for say Plato's Republic, I mean the the taming of Achilles thumos you could say is really the key to that entire book. That's what paideia or education has to do, because if you cannot bring that type of excessively ambitious man into the fold, then any other thoughts you might have about a just society aren't really going to get off the ground. Okay. So you have this great line in this book, uh, in your book, The Code of Man, and I've quoted it several times in my own writing. Um, I think it just really captures what's just a really great idea is that you say in some ways, Teddy Roosevelt and Churchill have more in common with Homer and Shakespeare than they do with us. What do you mean by that line? Cause it, it, you have to kind of think about it. I guess when I first read that, I had to think about what that meant, but what do you mean by that? Yeah. What, what I mean is that figures like Teddy Roosevelt and Churchill stood at the end of a tradition that was still in many ways completely accessible, a, a tradition that had been handed down, the, the one with which I began my comments, this notion of a true definition of manliness as the proper balance between the passions and the mind. And despite the belief in progress in the Victorian era, that history was somehow getting better and better, that wasn't thought to be incompatible with an immersion in these deep and rich teachings from the past about about the meaning of the soul. And so I think that for figures like that, standing at the end of that tradition, it, it still seemed like something living to them. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, for example, an amazingly well-educated man. I mean, he, he read Thucydides in the Greek several times in his life. Once when he was out west prospecting, uh, later on at night to relax in the White House. I mean, this was a living thing for them. What's happened since then, I think, is that we've somehow thought that the belief in progress has to lead to the wholesale rejection of this Western tradition. I think the 1960s had a lot to do with it, the growth of what was called child-centered learning, the idea that people shouldn't be burdened with dogmas from the past. And it's led to, I think, a rather calamitous sense of amnesia, about what even three or four generations ago was still quite accessible for for people. So, what do you think have been some of those calamitous results of uh, you know turning our backs or having that collective amnesia about this sort of three thousand year old tradition of manliness? Well, I, I think what it's led to is a kind of forgetting of this middle realm between passion and the mind. It has led to what I have called the dichotomy between the wimp and the beast. And, and this goes back to, uh, to Fight Club, that, that there's a tendency for young men today to either veer to the extreme of uh, Ed Norton in the movie, sort of uh, cruising 12-step programs to pick up women, buying IKEA furniture, trying to be politically correct in every way, 
or the opposite extreme to become a kind of fascistic brute like the character played by Brad Pitt. And we've lost that sense of the middle ground. What happens, I think, is that young men receive a kind of distorted version of manliness, which they identify with being a beast, and then they think that in order to be manly, they have to act that out. And over the years, I can't tell you the number of times that teachers, parents have told me that, you know, when they read that description of the beast versus the wimp and the attempt to kind of act out the beastly side, the people have said to me, you know, that describes the boys I teach or that describes my sons. And so I think that's the problem we face now. You said you uh, you saw things in your own graduate students, particularly the male students. Was there something in particular you saw in them where you you, you sensed that they didn't get this middle ground? What were they tending on the beast side or on the wimp side? Uh, they would veer from one to the other, and uh, the more thoughtful of them recognized that the fact that although they felt pressure to be the Ed Norton politically correct guy that. They were attracted to the other more more adventurous and bolder side, and and I mean it was often something that that they laughed about, but they were aware of this in in themselves. So also in, in the Code of Man, you argue that men should strive to follow a fivefold path in order to achieve what you call a life that's emotionally, erotically, and spiritually satisfying. What are those five? stages or virtues on this path to manhood? What I tried to suggest was that maybe we could talk about five spheres that are connected but distinct, and they would center around love, courage, not only physical but moral, pride, which would also include a reflection on revelation and and the limitations of pride, family, and patriotism. Uh, It's really an old-fashioned teaching. I don't claim any tremendous originality about it. In a way, it's straight out of Aristotle's ethics. But it seemed to me that that would be kind of a roadmap, maybe, whereby we could think our way back through these traditional teachings and and how they interact with our own unique conditions in in the present and, and try to come up with some sense of wholeness that would have a distinctively masculine tone to it. Okay. And you also say, I thought, going back to this fight, you, you put an emphasis on love or the romantic part, because you say the best hope for reclaiming the positive meaning of manliness lies in the sphere of romantic relationships. Why do you believe that's the case? I think, I think because articulate teachings about courage, about pride, even about family life and patriotism are somewhat distant from today's readers. It, it's, it's, it's something that you have to kind of go out of your way to look for. Whereas love, I think, the hope of love, the stirring of love, is something that we all still feel. So I, I think of these five paths to manliness. Love is the one that we don't really have to make any effort to experience. We're just going to experience it. And I think that that feeling still stirs in us the desire to be lovable by the beloved. Again, this goes right back to Plato. In other words, when we love somebody, we want to aspire to a standard of conduct 
that will make us lovable in their eyes. And that gives us a motive for self-development and self-improvement. And then as we pursue that motive to be lovable by the beloved, that can act as a kind of link to developing those other virtues as well. In other words, in order to make ourselves worthy of love, we would then explore these other facets of life, including courage, family life, patriotism, and so forth. And I have to say that of, of all the reviews of my books, even the ones that were most hostile, the ones that, you know, sort of said I was an anti-feminist or something like that, they tended to like that part of the, of the treatment the most. And I, I think that shows that love era still touches a chord in people. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. 
Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best, become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. That sounds very much like uh, Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments, loved by the beloved. I guess he got that from uh, Aristotle. And, uh, and and behind that, behind that, even Plato's Symposium, I think, which which is probably the the core classical treatment of that okay. of that idea. So you spend a, a, deal, a great deal of time um, studying and researching honor. And shame. And what role does honor and shame play in the code of man? And does that system of honor still exist in the West? I would say that honor and the capacity to feel ashamed of failing to live up to our own best standards is really indispensable to educating people. And it's it's fallen into disfavor because we're told repeatedly that it's bad for people to feel ashamed of themselves. But it, it seems to me that while you don't want to shame people in a brutal way, if you're going to exhort people morally, and especially young people, to aspire to be good human beings, then their capacity to feel ashamed for falling short of that is really important and, and necessary. And I think people still, I certainly still feel with students that they are very much capable of feeling shame without my even prompting it. If, if they do feel that they have fallen beneath themselves. And so I do think that we have a system of male honor that is still intact, but it is fragile. Uh, it, it requires an act of recovery, I think, to go out and find it. People like you and I have done that, and others. And I think it's an ongoing project, but I'm confident now that that ship is launched and that probably we are going to, bit by bit, recover that heritage. I want to add as well that, as you stressed in some of your writings, even everyday manners are an important component of manliness, don't you think? I mean, how to groom, how to act properly in certain situations, good manners, gentlemanly conduct. I think these habits are very important for, for us to try and uh, establish in young people. Sure, because it's all about uh, how a man presents himself or acts in the public arena. And Yeah, 
I mean, that's important, you know. I mean, how, how, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's one of the things, hard things about honor that I've found is that um, there's, we don't really have a vocabulary for it anymore. Um, mm-hmm. because we, we've, we've made honor into sort of, uh, you know, meaning personal integrity, which, which is true. That's how, but like the ancients had a different conception of it that it wasn't, it was cer- go ahead. It was certainly more public oriented. Yeah. Uh, we live in large mass democracies. We have a code of individualism that really trumps everything else. It's not probably going to be possible for us to literally recover what was once held to be honor-seeking, because we will never quite have that same uh, public civic direction, but but we can certainly enrich our own experience, you know, from, from those traditional teachings, and public honor still has an important place to play, sure. role to play in our own uh, politics. Uh, several times in your writing, you t- you talk about how uh, war can be a, a moral wake-up call. I believe the Code of Man was written just shortly after 9-11. Um, you know, how, how is that? How does war play as a, mor- as a moral wake-up call? And what ro- role do you think war and martial virtue should play in, in shaping a man? Yes, I mean, nobody in their right mind wants war, but... There are occasions when war is both necessary and just. Certainly, in the case of one's self-defense, the self-defense of one's country, but also, at times, one goes to war to protect other people or to rescue them from tyranny. That's what sparked the American Civil War. That's what sparked our involvement in World War II. So, I think that while everybody prefers peace to war, there there are going to be times when we can't avoid the necessity of, of armed conflict. And, and certainly for the moral tradition of the West, courage in combat, going back to Aristotle, was always one of the important building blocks for an education in character formation, as Aristotle says, if you haven't felt fear, then you don't know what courage is. Now, they did not regard courage as the highest virtue, and they believed that courage at all times had to be governed by moderation. In other words, courage is not the same thing as mad daring or insane insane boldness like Achilles. Nevertheless, though, they, they did believe that the capacity for self-discipline and self-control that one does learn through military experience can be invaluable for cultivating those higher virtues of civic life and the mind. So yeah, I I do think that remains an important introduction to the meaning of manliness. Yeah, and I think you made the point in The Code of Man how in academics, uh, we're very uncomfortable discussing about the morality of war, how war can be good sometimes. And you said, you you sort of make the case that that's, that's, we're missing out or we're, I don't know, a lot of, in a way, uh, not giving an enriching idea to our students about what goodness is or what it means to be a good man. Yeah. I, I think there's a, a 
very deep and widespread aversion in the academic world and in much of the world of media punditry to acknowledge that there can be a positive account of military virtue and battlefield courage. Look at the uh, controversy over the sniper film. Mm -hmm. And it's odd in a way because everybody still, I think, concedes that World War II was a just war. So if, if people can still grasp that it would have been wrong to sit out a war against Hitler, it, I marvel at why it's so difficult to extend that to more recent conflicts. You know, I mean, okay, maybe maybe the invasion of Iraq wasn't on the same level morally as World War II, but certainly it had an ethical dimension. So I found it very puzzling. It's a, it's a disturbing case of groupthink. Well, let's go back to let's, let's continue on that idea about the talking heads or the punditry. You know, in recent years, you've made the um, the case that policymakers, the pundits, they're overlooking the driving force behind such things as school shootings and also terrorism. I think that's what a lot of your research has been about lately: ter- young men and terrorism. What's the common explanation for these violent acts, and what do you think is the underlying underlying cause? Of them. Well, what what we're told by the current administration, and it's a view that is shared by many reputable opinion makers, is that the root cause of terrorism is poverty and lack of opportunity for economic advancement. Now, I would be the first to concede that that is certainly one motivation for terrorism, but I don't think it's the primary one. Uh, I think the primary one is a kind of perverted idealism, a kind of perverted sense of nobility in which terrorists believe that they are genuinely working toward uh, a noble purpose, which is the establishment of, in, in the case of jihadism, a worldwide caliphate. But if you go back to the French Revolution, to the Jacobins, to the Russian Revolution, to National Socialism, to the Khmer Rouge, to Maoism. In all of these cases, you will find the commitment to create a utopian society, a collective in which the individual will be submerged and all sources of alienation, unhappiness, and injustice will disappear. And that this requires armed conflict terrorism, and almost always genocide against some designated outgroup that is the embodiment of all evil. So I think we really have to come to terms with this, because number one, most of the leaders of these revolutionary groups aren't poor. They come from middle or even upper class backgrounds. Bin Laden came from an extremely wealthy family. And so they are certainly not doing what they do for the sake of economic advantage. And I think that most of the hardened cadres, the people who plan the operations and carry them out, poverty is not what they're worried about. And so I think we really have to turn to understanding the psychology of terrorism and face the perhaps unpleasant notion that a kind of violent ambition to impose one's will on others in the name of a revolutionary vision may just be an irreducible facet of human psychology. How, how would, if we 
had that approach, how would it change how we approach these wars? Well, it's hard to say in practice, but at least you would understand that any form of extending Western-style pluralism and economic materialism and prosperity to these combat zones may have limited success at best in in winning people away from uh, terroristic causes. And I think as well, you would have to think twice about, let's say, encouraging the overthrow of secular authoritarian dictatorships like Assad, extremely unpleasant as they are, if what you've got waiting in the wings is some form of Muslim Brotherhood or ISIS or collectivist jihadism, because then you're going to get the state taken over by truly committed revolutionaries and ideologues, and no amount of economic prosperity is going to deter them from their goal. So while it's hard to kind of chase the headlines over this, I think we just need a kind of dose of realism about the psychological motivations of terrorists. And it's going to affect whatever calculations we make. You know, maybe it would have been better to uh, have have had a Mubarak with all of his failings and cronyism and so forth than the attempt of the Muslim Brotherhood to turn Egypt into a, into a theocratic republic like Iran. I don't know how much you know about or how much you've researched, like, Muslim man or you know radical Islam and what their conceptions of manliness um I mean is that playing a role in this well you know i'm I'm on the side of the debate that believes that radical Islamism is more of a descendant of European revolutionary nihilism than it is in any way directly connected to the intrinsic content of Islam. And I know there are people who don't agree with that, but I really think we're barking up the wrong tree to treat this as a so-called holy war between the Christian West and the Muslim East, because I think that movements like ISIS, the the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, they've really got a lot more to do with Franz Fanon and earlier revolutionary movements like National Socialism than they do with the core teachings of Islam. That that's my view, anyway. Interesting. Um, so, I'd like to just get some ideas for our readers from you while I have you here, because you wrote another great book uh, called "What Is What Is a Man?" It's sort of an anthology of collections of uh, excerpts from books, speeches, essays about what it means to be a man. And I would love for you to, if you have any suggestions on what our readers should go check out and start reading if they want to kind of understand this uh, heritage of Western manliness? Well, I, I think often you find the best discussions of these issues not so much in purely theoretical writings as in great historians and memoirs, historians like Gibbon or Macaulay, and also in the memoirs of statesmen like like, like Churchill, uh, Churchill's Great Contemporaries, for example, is one of my favorite books. And from there, one one can go back and read Machiavelli or 
Castiglione is the courtier, uh, back from there into the classical authors like Cicero, Plato, Aristotle. There, there's really just an enormous wealth uh, of of, uh, of of insights that, that one can that one can explore and, and graze in. Fantastic. Well, Professor Newell, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me too, Brett. Thank you so much. Our guest today was Waller Newell. He's a professor of political science at Carleton University in Canada, and he's the author of several books. The ones I recommend you go check out is The Code of Man and also What is a Man? What is a Man is a fantastic book. It's one of those things you can open up to any part and you'll get some sort of gem that will speak to what it means to be a virtuous man. Also check out his latest book, Tyranny. Very fascinating book. I'm about halfway through it right now. And it's speaking to a lot of what's going on in the world today with terrorism and how it relates to masculinity. Uh, it's interesting insights there. So go check it out. You can find those all on Amazon.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And I'd really appreciate it if you can go to the store, Art of Manliness store. It's at store.artofmanliness.com. Got lots of great AOM swag there, t-shirts, got a coffee mug that could also double as a weapon if need be, a journal that was inspired by Ben Franklin's virtue journal that he developed for himself. One of a kind. You can't find this anywhere else. Uh, your purchases there will help support the podcast and what we do on the site. Again, that's store.artofmanliness.com. I'd really appreciate it. Until next time, stay manly.